nice scene, waterworks. And it's good to have met you. Uh, we came, I used to haul tanker milk way back in the day, in the early 70s. That tells you something about me. And I used to do this whole area here, Belgrove, Anvil, all the way from Wummelsdorf to Hershey. And so I'm very familiar. And uh, I think it's wonderful that the Church of Jesus Christ can move forward and continue to plant churches and to let the word of God be spread in different communities. And that is a blessing in itself. <clears throat> the best seats are right up front here. And they're the most expensive, but they're the best ones. At least they are if you go to a football game. Have you heard what the best elite seats cost you at the Super Bowl this year? Has anyone heard? Not quite. 38. You'll pay $38,000 for a priority seat to watch some guys chase a football around. And uh, the average seat costs you 11. So you're way ahead of the game. You, you're, you're, you're here on a free basis, but it's all about Jesus Christ and loving him, serving him. And I have rather chosen tonight to, I geared my message more toward what it means to be involved in church life, how you're, there's three things I want to share. Well, actually four, but uh, the one relates to something else, but you've heard of the uh, uh, AAA that comes out and uh, helps you for free if you have a problem, but you pay uh, a certain amount of money every so often to keep it going, the American Automobile Association. Well, I've chosen the AAA tonight, and I'd like to, uh, as I, well, I wanted to say too, I come from Word of Life, and it's my wife Emma is with me, and uh, we have seven children, 28 grandchildren, and 18 great-grandchildren. Now you really know what it's like. Uh, we've gone the way, but it's been a it's been a journey. It's not always what you anticipate and what you expect it to be. But through it all, God is faithful. He promises to be with us to the end. And that's where we want to come with our end result of this whole message and come to the place where at the end we are going to talk about what it means to follow God in a faithful way. And the three A's we want to look at tonight are our attitudes toward congregational life, and then our allegiance to congregational life, and then the last one is our attendance in congregational life. Now you might think those don't really talk about the mechanics or the tools of church, but I tell you what, if these three are not in place in your life, your interests in what you will provide for the church where you are a part of will not be very good. You can go through the motions, but it's this way. God said, I am that I am. God is who he is. God will never change. God will always be the same. Therefore, you and I can take that to the bank that God will never change on us. But we are the ones that need to be careful we don't take our lives away from him. And the church is an absolute monarchy. God authorized 
the monarch is not the same pope, bishop, or presbytery, council, committee, or conference, or board, none less in place than God himself. No man was consulted when the law of God was promulgated. There was an, a referendum, there was no referendum submitted to the apostolic church as to whether they should accept or reject this creed or gospel of Christ. There is a fearful penalty attached to any effort to modify, add, or to subtract from any part of God's word. So two things are very important in church life to be avoided in every church, and they are this. And I want to encourage you, I, I believe you're a very young church. I don't know when you started for sure, but I remember when Myerstown was talking about waterworks, and uh, I thought it's an interesting name. I, is there a town of waterworks here? Is that what? I, I wouldn't have known that for sure. I knew of Ono, I knew of Anvil, and all the towns around in Belgrove, but I wouldn't have known just exactly of waterworks itself. But anyway, two things are to be avoided in every church, and they are this. Liberalism, which takes little or no account of the personal life, faith, and conduct of members. And the other one is legalism, which insists on emphasizing technicalities to an extent that spirituality is crowded out. The first leads to anarchy, and the second one leads to formalism. We give the church substantial support when we obey, defend, and promulgate the doctrines known as her tenets of faith. And that word promulgate, I had to look what it meant myself, and it means this, it means to make known by an open declaration. And folks, it's not just about coming to church, being active in the church, and serving the church in the capacity of what it is as a building here, and gathering as a congregation as important it is, as it is. But it's also not going out and meeting and directing other people's hearts and lives into the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I would say tonight, folks, that you are not looking at a religious setting here, but you are having yourself a, as a Christian, a personal relationship with someone that makes you meet on a horizontal level and vertically that relationship keeps the strength of the horizontal relationship in the place it needs to continue to be. And I tell you what, the churches that love and care for each other, I appreciate you, appreciated your uh, devotional tonight about loving. Uh, unless we have those kinds of things, we'll be talking about that a little bit tonight, but loving, <clears throat> loving is so important that we learn to love each other in the church. But uh, for a uh, text tonight, I have chosen to read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19, and you're probably familiar with this portion of scripture. It's when Jesus was talking with the disciples and he was personally asking the disciples who they said he was. And he explained it to him here. And there's one question I want to leave with you tonight, and I want you to dwell on this continually and see how you think about this uh, question. But this is the question for you. If everyone did church like I do, what would my church be like? Did you get that? 
If everyone did church like I do, what would my church be like? The word church means ecclesia. And I, I know you could call the congregation the church. We talk about my part in congregational life, but we are also thinking about the church, which is ecclesia. And he talked about the bride, the bride of Jesus Christ. Someday he's coming back for the church. And folks, we want to be a part of that, do we not? It's so important. I, I tell you what, the seats at the Super Bowl might cost 38,000 bucks, but I, you got much more invested in what you have here. Understand that principle. You have some fringe benefits that are connected to your life that are out of this world. You will someday meet the Savior that saved your soul. And you will be rewarded according to how you lived your life in congregational life. To the people that you love, that you serve with, and come in contact with, and you actively involve yourself Sunday after Sunday. Very important. And remember that. If everyone did church like I do, what would my church be like? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible tells us in verses 9 and 10 that we are a chosen generation. We are chosen by God. That makes us joint heirs and heirs with God. We have an inheritance we will receive someday. And God is willing to give that to us for faithfulness. And we will receive that. And it says also, not just chosen generation, but we are also a royal priesthood. Do you know what royal is? That is a person that is treated with great dignity. Folks, I'm looking forward to the day. I ain't too much here, but I know someday I'm going to be royalty with Jesus Christ. He says we can dwell with him forever in heaven. Folks, it's going to be worth it all. You need to remember that thought. Well, anyway, we are a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. And I'd like to consider what, what makes the church what it is as a bride of Christ. Uh, God said he is who he is. Let's always remember something about God. God answers to no one. God is sovereign. The truth of God has been put in place and it will never change. And therefore, by God having put the laws of God in place, he has no one that he answers to because he has all the answers. He never answers to no one. Did you ever think about that? Now, you can have a relationship with this God that understands and knows everything about your life, and he can help you through life in such a dramatic way, and yet he never has to be challenged about his way of life. God is sovereign. He is the ultimate authority that will never change. Let's read our text this evening. John, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 19. The Bible says when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I the son of man am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say you that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you, also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that last verse there, verse 19, would express itself in saying to us that the things you and I attain and accomplish for the cause of the kingdom are either going to be bound or they are going to be lost for the kingdom of God. And he, when he said to Peter about, who do you really think I am? And he told him, he's uh, Jesus Christ, he's a solid rock. And Jesus just, uh, he says, the gates of hell will never prevail against him. That's a wonderful thought. You and I can take that home and we can uh, trust God that he will never let the church fall down. He'll always be there for the church. It'll never, he'll never fail the church. And that uh, when it says, thou art Peter, Jesus was representing him as a small rock, which means Petra, a movable rock. And the other rock that he says he talks about, and he says, upon this rock I will build my church, means not Peter the small rock, but that means Petros. And that rock is a huge rock that is unmovable. It could be a whole mass of a mountain that could not be moved unless they blow it away and take it away. Otherwise, it's solid and it will always remain and be the foundation for all things. But that is our text this evening. But as we go through this, I'd like to think about the, uh, the attributes of God in congregational life, including it with our attitudes, allegiance, and attendance. And as you think about that, God is omniscient. If you go to Psalm 139, you read that sometime. We won't have time for it probably tonight. But when you read that, David, the psalmist, is expressing himself. It doesn't matter where he goes, what he does, even in the dark, God knows where he is. He understands all his thoughts. He knows him afar off, and it don't matter. God is always an all-knowing God. Sometimes people say, well, how do you understand and know who God is? Well, folks, I contend tonight that God is the one that is involved in everything that has life and moves on the earth. That includes all of his creation. That includes all the animals. That includes all the human beings you know that are alive and well. Yeah. God is in it. Get that in your heart. God is in everything that has life. And when you can take that perspective and you start looking at individuals, you understand that God has a perfect plan for every person. Some people think they're valueless at times, but I want to contend with you tonight. God has a true purpose and a plan for your life. You know that. And as you fulfill that, and we come together as a collective body of believers, God is going to take that church and make it flourish. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He understands everything. Read Isaiah 35, 8, and 9 sometime. But as you go through there and you see omnipresence, that means God is everywhere at the same time. Satan can't do what God does. His presence is everywhere at all times. His voicemail never goes on. He, you never have to text God. God never puts you on hold. He never, not, he never not answers his phone. But God is always there. Jeremiah 33, 3, call me and I will answer thee. And I will show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. 
God is so faithful, dear people. Yes, he's present everywhere all the time at once. God is also omnipotent. God is almighty. He's all-powerful. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. I'd like to look at a verse there, a uh, couple verses. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 and 19. Ephesians chapter 1. There we go. The Bible says here, 17 to 19, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance are, inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to earth, usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? Thinking about God as being the omnipotent God he is, the Bible tells us that when someone becomes a Christian, you shall receive power. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, after you receive Christ, you shall receive power. That you may be, uh, that as you receive Christ, you may receive the Spirit, and the power of His Spirit will reveal Himself and use you for the mighty building of His kingdom. I, I would encourage us, let's remember something. We never, we never own the church. We are stewards of the church. The church of Jesus Christ will only flourish as much as you and I are in the presence of it, making things happen and functioning and working. Yes, very much so. And this, this and, and when you, it says there, you shall receive power and after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and it tells us that we should be witnesses for him in Jerusalem at home, in Judea, our neighborhoods and communities around us, and into the uttermost parts of the world. God gives us that force and that power. That word power means dunamis. And dunamis means dynamite. Did you know that? That is the power that it's talking about here. And folks, I have never understood how dynamite dispels itself and makes such a huge explosion when it goes. Did you ever understand that? How can a stick of dynamite this big explode and do great damage or whatever you want to do? Well, anyway, I'd like to just illustrate one little story with you. It was back when I was 15 years old. I worked for my Uncle Paul Zimmerman in Anvil. Yeah, he lived in Anvil, but I was, uh, at that point, he started farming at Richland. I was 15. I worked for him. And he was out plowing one day in his one field, and there was limestone, rock, flintstone, too. And there was also sinkholes in that farm sometimes. You had to be careful you didn't drive in them. But I remember one time he pulled out this huge flintstone rock. It must have weighed like a ton and a half to two ton. Well, he tried to move it with his tractor and push it around, and he was digging at it, and we were trying to get this thing to move. He said, this is impossible. So I said, what are you going to do? He said, well, blow it out of the ground. And he, at that point, you didn't need to be certified to buy dynamite. You could go to the local hardware store and buy dynamite sticks and a fuse. 
And he went and bought five dynamite sticks, and he, he didn't realize he bought the big sticks rather than the little ones. There were some that were a smaller certification and a larger one, but he got five of the large ones instead of, small, of the small ones. He brought them home, and do you know how you make dynamite blow down? It's funny how it works, but we put these five sticks of dynamite with the fuse in it on top of this huge rock, and we caked it. They call it caking the dynamite. You would take mud, you'd make mud with ground and water, and you'd cake the dynamite, and you just pile it over top of it. You, know, you didn't have to use a lot. That would make the dynamite blow down. Well, we had it on this rock, and he put it there, and he caked it, and him and I took off after he lit the fuse. We went in about 400 feet into the barn, and the front of the barn was open, and uh, we stood in there, and we were waiting for this thing. We didn't know what's going to happen. And we were standing there, and it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And, well, I wonder if the thing's lit. Maybe it went out. I said, I don't know. But we waited a little while. All of a sudden, boom! The world vibrated. And it blew off. And we were standing there, and a few seconds later, it was raining pebbles of stones on the barn roof. And uh, we waited for things to settle and the dust to settle, and we started walking out through there. We couldn't see no stone. It was gone, folks. It was gone. It blew that thing into such pieces, there was no piece bigger than my fist. And pieces all over. I mean, we just, we just kind of scraped things together, and we didn't even have to clean up the rock. But you know the interesting thing? I love power. I think it's the greatest thing that ever got invented. Powerful engines, powerful this. But it's amazing to me how that something like that, a little, those couple little sticks of dynamite, can produce and generate such power that it just blows everything apart, whatever it meets up with, and it does it in the air. How does that work? Well, folks, I want to contend tonight, as the Bible says, that the power of the Holy Spirit is as dunamis, as dynamite, and it will perform the duties of God, it tells us here that his mighty power, I believe the power that he can produce in our hearts and our souls, dear folks, is beyond the measure of what those five sticks of dynamite did. You know, we can't understand the spiritual strength and power that God has. And folks, if we would get alive and generate some of the things that God wants us to attend to, and I hope that's what our message does tonight, is to get us to understand what it means to get dedicated to the cause of God's kingdom. Folks, you'll never know this side of glory, what it all means. Omnipotent and all-powerful, what a God we serve. Well, anyway... Let's think about our attitudes toward congregational life. All right, let's go to Galatians chapter 5. Come back here just a few books. And, uh, no, it's one book. Galatians chapter 5. And you're probably real familiar with these scriptures, but I, I tell you what, you've got to keep reading them over and over. There's a... If you start at verse 22 to 25, the Bible tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is what? It is love, it is joy and peace, long-suffering, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And the Bible tells us there that there is no law against those 
fruit of the Spirit. God wants us, as he works through us, to generate this fruit of the Spirit. And the brother talked a little bit about the gifts of the Spirit. And I want to contend this evening, and I, I, I know, I know, that there is a lot of gifts represented here tonight. I don't know what your gifts are. Maybe you check that out or think you know what your gift is or whatever the cause may be. And I, I want to leave another question with you at this point. Is it really so all important that you understand and know your gift? I'm not saying it's not okay to know what God wants to do through you. But we have to be very careful when we pursue gifts because we have a tendency to overrule what God wants to accomplish in the setting of the church he has. Let's go to Corinthians now. In 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'd like to look at uh, verses 4 to 12 here. And uh, as I read these, look with me and see what it says here. It says now in verse 4, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Now let's stop there a minute. Now let's think about this. God is one person. God is a spirit. And he is one. And the Bible tells us here that he makes all these gifts function together. In verse 7, he would proclaim the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Now, without the Spirit of God, I don't care what for gift you have, if you don't have the fulfilling Spirit of God in your heart to make your gift what it shall be for God's kingdom of work, you are losing ground. Because God is the one that does the administrations, the operations, and all the different ways in which the gifts are given to people. Now, let's go on into verse 8. It says, <clears throat> For to one is given by the Spirit... You notice every time it's by the Spirit of God, the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, all these gifts are put in place by who? By God, through his Holy Spirit, he manifests them in your life and mine. Only if we are committed to his lordship to let him have control of that. And notice what verse 11 says. It says, but all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit dividing. Notice, dividing to every man severally as he will. Not as I will, not as a gift that I think I want to pursue and I think I have, but he gives us and makes those gifts 
manifest themselves in our lives. I would contend tonight that you and I, in our attitudes toward congregational life, need to resign our spirit to God's uh, submission and let him have control. And as we, to practice the fruit of the spirit, I'd say let's pursue the fruit of the spirit so that the gifts of the spirit can be manifested by God to us. Does that make sense tonight? I, I, I really, you know, when the Bible says you have love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness, goodness, faith and meekness and temperance in the church, the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law against it, but the fruit of the Spirit will make you a person that's very loving and caring and you'll be concerned about everybody in the church. The whole church will get together and they'll love each other so much that God is going to be up in heaven looking down on this congregation if you're practicing this. And he's going to say, wow, look at that congregation. They're a wonderful congregation. They just love each other. They care about each other. And they, they just, they have such right hearts toward each other. And they're serving me in faithfulness, wanting my will in their lives. Oh, I'm going to take that brother and put that gift in him. And I'm going to take that brother and put that gift in him and that brother and that sister. And we're just going to flourish in the kingdom of God. Work through the Holy Spirit guiding our lives and him having control of us. Because we are a loving, caring people toward each other and our service to God. Is that okay? And I, I, I don't want you to go away here and say, Brother Levi has no room for the gifts. That's not my goal. But I'm saying this, though, that the fruit of the Spirit is so much more important than me pursuing a personal gift. Because God contends. And if you go on into 1 Corinthians 13, what's the next chapter? Huh? What's the next chapter? What do we call it? The love chapter. God is concerned that we're a loving people. What does the Bible tell us in 1 John? It says, how do people know that we love God? Huh? What does it say? Because we love the brethren. That's how the world sees what you are. Attitudes. Well... I'd like to turn to one more scripture here for attitudes. Five, Ephesians 5.21. Okay, the Bible says here, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. You know what? I don't know if you notice it around us today, but there's less and less fear of God, isn't there? People are really defying God. No fear. You see it in big, bold letters on pickup windows in the back and on station wagons and no fear. Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. And you notice, you, you know what the rest of that chapter is there? It's a, it's a chapter about husbands and wives. Whoa. That speaks to it, don't it? And I want to say something to you, one of the greatest gifts that is lost in the church today is the gift of submission. 
Nobody's going to tell anybody how to do it no more. It's a shame. But listen, submission is never experienced. And listen closely. If you think you know what the definition is for submission, submission is never experienced till I am willing to submit and not knowing what it's going to do, but I know it's the right thing to do because of my relationship to my brothers and sisters. And you'll never experience the blessing of submission until you practice it. Do you know what I'm saying? I could tell you many instances. We don't have time. But submission means that I will lay down myself because I love something. I love somebody more than myself. Well, and I express it this way. Um, my years ago, when we moved on my wife's home place to the farm, uh, in, we moved down off Texter Mountain. We moved there, and we lived there 23 years. But when we moved there, in the house, there were uh, blinds, just blinds to pull down. And I, I thought, you know, we, money was a little tight. We were trying to start farming and what have you all. And I thought that the blinds looked pretty good shape yet. But my wife, at that time, there was a blind that was in, in uh, style, pretty much, you could say. Or a lot of people liked them. They were called the mini blinds. You know what a mini blind is? Ladies, you know what a mini blind is. Well, she thought she wanted mini blinds. I said, I don't think it's necessary because I believe those blinds are still in good shape and they'll keep all everything out that you need to keep out. And those mini blinds, we can just leave that go. And, and I say this to tell us that in our loving, submissive ways, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God, I went out to the barn and I started thinking about God didn't leave me alone about the mini blinds. I started thinking about the mini blinds. And it troubled me. It bothered my conscience. And I said to God, well, I don't feel it's necessary. Well, do you love your wife? Well, yes, yes, of course. We all love our wives, don't we, men? Sure, I can see it on your face. Well, as the, as the afternoon was wearing away, this troubled me more and more. Now... This whole thing had switched. Now it wasn't the argument about, or the debate. I don't think we were arguing, were we? No, we wouldn't argue. <laughs> you don't either, do you? You know, I, I've always said that uh, I sort of feel sorry for people that had the perfect marriage because they never get the opportunity to make up and forgive each other. <laughs> I, no, that's not good either. You ought to try and do the best you can prevent those things. But this is the point. As the afternoon wore on, my conscience was smote because I cared about my wife now instead of debating should we have mini blinds or not. So I go in the walk. I say, yes, you can go order your mini blinds. I think she was shocked. She thought, what got into him? But you know what? Love superseded the mini blinds. And folks, I tell you, if we love Jesus Christ the way we should, in allegiance to him, 
It's going to make all the difference in our responses to each other and how we care about each other. It makes a big difference, and that's our next thought here. I didn't mention our allegiance to congregational life. And thinking about uh, allegiance, um, allegiance means this in definition, the obligation, support, and loyal devotion to a cause or person. And that's what happened for us. You, you start looking beyond what you want for yourself and you start to become an asset and you become a part of loving Jesus Christ more. And that's what I said about God putting the spiritual gifts in people's lives as they learn to love each other, care for each other. I say a church that has the fruit of the spirit figured out and lives it is going to flourish in the gifts without even doing anything because God will make it happen. Well, do you know what the definition is of commitment? We all talk about commitments, don't we? A lot of weddings, commitments. We commit our lives to one another. The commitment means, a definition, is doing what you said you were going to do back there long after the feeling is gone. You know, it's so easy to make uh, promises, maybe, maybe say. It's so easy to make vows and to just, uh, uh, when, when our emotions are running deep, and of course at weddings it's like that, you know, we, we, we can't love our partner more. We're just so much in love. There's nothing going to go wrong in our marriages. But give it a week, something might come up. But the thought is that as we commit ourselves in those vows and we continue to stay in them, we will continue to flourish as God has it planned for his congregations. Well, you know, 2 Peter chapter 4, verses 2 through 10, we won't have time to read it, but there it talks about Jesus, our God, being the chief cornerstone. And he is the one that is the head controlling the body. We were talking about the body. But he controls, he's the head. He is the one that directs. He is the one that orchestrates. And he manipulates how the church functions and rules and works in its premises as a congregation and he's always going to have his interests attracted to his people that is you as a congregation here and I liken that to years ago we used to live on the Texter Mountain before we moved off as the other incident happened but when we were up there on the Texter Mountain there was a huge barn 110 feet long it was what they called the Ulrich Farm and it was a beautiful barn. I mean, it was a monarch of a barn. It had the stone wall ends in it and everything. Well, somebody, some night, got this idea, this barn doesn't have to be here no more. They went and lit it on fire. The whole thing burned to the ground down in. And I remember going there, and I, oh, what a loss. And they wanted these stone ends down because there's possibilities standing there like that. They were not going to rebuild the barn but they thought they ought to throw the barn ends down, the stones. But the way they did it, they got a high lift, and they put a long pole on the front of it, 
And they went up against the top about, a two, about three quarters of the way up. And they started going like this. And they went farther and farther. And they kept rocking this wall. And it got looser and looser in the stones. And after a while, they backed off real quick one time. It was overbalanced far enough. The whole thing came crashing out and fell down. Then after that, the dust settled and everything. I saw these guys digging around in the stone. And they were looking for something amongst the stones. I thought maybe they buried a guy. But they hadn't. Finally, they came to what they were looking for. Do you know what they wanted? They wanted to find the chief cornerstone. There was a stone up at the top that marked the year of the time the barn was built and the year that it was built there and who owned it and everything. And they got that stone and they saved it. But listen, folks, this is the point. The point is that chief cornerstone will never relate to any other church. I mean, any other barn. It is inseparable to its cause. It is finished. Folks, Jesus is still building his church. He is the chief cornerstone. You and I are part of that wall, supporting, adorning, and, and keeping each other in check with him. And through that experience, Jesus Christ is inseparable to the church as the chief cornerstone. Do you get the picture? of what it means for the church to thrive in Christ alone. It makes all the difference in your life. Let's move on quickly to the end here. Our attendance in congregational life. Well, this is a biggie these days. We, we now can sit at home if we feel like it and streamline and we can get our donut and coffee and we can prop up our legs and we can sit there by the desk or the wherever we have a screen and we can tune into church and we don't have to go to church. And rightly so, it has provided itself to some senior citizens which they just love it and enjoy it. But what I guess I, I want to challenge us with is the body of Jesus Christ needs to function within its building, its congregation. And if we're going to do church like we will, what if we all decide one morning, well, let's all just streamline. Nobody be here. Think that through. Nobody would be here. And I just want to encourage us. You know, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. You know what it says here? Hebrews 10, 25, the Bible says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. And if there's ever a time and day, folks, we need to be concerned about what we see happening outside of the church. I just want to encourage you. I think you're doing a great and a wonderful thing here. You keep filling God's kingdom of work, or you keep fulfilling God's kingdom of work here God is going to honor that and bless it. Yes, he will. He will. He'll be faithful. And it says we shouldn't forsake our, our assemblings. And I think he means get out of our chairs and come to church. Not forsaking ourselves. Definition is don't neglect, renounce, leave, and get to church. Abandon yourself from wherever you are and go to church. Don't forsake the assembling of the saints. 
as we think about that uh, whole idea of what it means to follow Christ, I'd like to just quickly go to James chapter 2 and look at a few verses, 19 and 20. And this is a portion of scripture where James talks about the gifts, or not the gifts, faith and works. Faith and works. He says in verse 18, or even uh, verse 17, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, man may say, Thou hast works, faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God that doeth well, but the devils also believe and tremble. Well, that's an interesting verse, isn't it? Then it says in conclusion, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? I would conclude tonight that there are people around that have a vision, but they have no action, then they continue to daydream. Faith without vision is daydreaming. And then those that have action without a vision, it becomes chaos or is a nightmare. And then those, and this is talking about faith and works connecting themselves, Vision with action is beautiful reality. Isn't that what God wants for us? He, wants, he has the best in mind for you, dear people. I want to just encourage you to be strengthened in God's perfect will. Follow his authority and power invested in and through you. And I'd like to, in conclusion, turn to Jeremiah 29, verses 11 to 14. Jeremiah 29, verses 11 to 14. Here the Bible says, and this is God speaking, dear people. Take this to heart. God is speaking to us, me, to you. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. And you notice the last part of that verse, to give you an expected end. And then it says, Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And you shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And the first part of 14, And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. God has an expected end. And it's amazing to me, and uh, I, I, can't, I can't stand here before you and say I did everything right. I can't. I tried by the grace of God to do what he wanted me to in my lifetime. But folks, I contend with this. I see a lot of people that start out right, but don't end well. And there is something that happens through life that slowly can wear you out where you give up and quit. And you just sit back and prop up your feet. But I want to say to you, God wants to give you an expected end so that when you get to the end of life you will receive well done thou good and faithful servant enter into the joy of the Lord God bless you as you pursue him and keep the faith and be strong he is coming back